It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book Close Encounters of the Worst Kind and the captivating memoir Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. Today's show is going to be really different. And it's going to really, you know, depending on your age, it may really take you back. Um, I know that it takes me back. When we think about the hippies, what do we think about? What have they ever done for us? Well, prepare for a wild trip as today's special guest, Matthew Ingram, takes us back to the summer of love and shows us how it changed forever our ideas about and practices of wellness, medicine, and health. Yes, you heard me right. Practices of Wellness, Medicine, and Health. His upcoming book, Retreat, is an enthralling and immersive history. The first book to trace the connections between the 60s and 70s counterculture and health and wellness. The counterculture of the 60s and 70s is remembered chiefly for music, fashion, art, feminism, black power, and the new left. But until now, unexplored, yet no less important, aspect is lies is its relationship with health. Matthew Ingram has thrown raves in West Africa, written for Teletubbies, was fleetingly in the electronic band The Black Dog, created the cult music blog Wobot, has written for The Wire and Fact magazines set up the Dissensus Forum, and has put out a series of LPs. His vitamin C animated documentary was shown at the Chicago International Children's Festival. So um, I know you're excited to hear what Matthew has to say, and we're going to get started. Good morning, Matthew. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Randy. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you for being my guest. You're very welcome. Um, So... I was telling you before we went on air that um, I remember this era very well. I was born in 1958. So I was a child while the hippies were doing their thing, but I had a sister that was a hippie. So, uh, and I was close with her. So I was very much involved in, in all that. And um, I guess I was a little mini hippie wannabe. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I tried to, I tried to dress like my sister and, and do all those things, but I remember it well. Um, ah. But as far as do you have any memories of do you have any memories of her of the sort of things that she brought into the house or into your life? Was it was it just music or? It was music, clothing, marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> yes. She flipped my parents out. I think they threw her out of the house. But, um, yeah, I remember things like that. I remember the riots. I remember the, the um, I remember all the arrests 
of, you know, when the hippies would gather in different places and the police would come yeah. and arrest them. It was just, mm. <laughs> it was a crazy time. And um, yeah. during the Vietnam War, my parents didn't mm. know what to do with this at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a big and, re- and a, a revolt, yeah. It was. And the day she came home in bell bottoms, oh, my God, did they flip out. They flipped out on her. So... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but I don't remember wellness being a part of it at all. Sure. So, well, I suppose the yeah. first thing that that people um, that people remember that could uh, immediately equate to that would be would be aspects of food. So, um, I know that the a lot of the the first uh, sort of whole food delis came out of um, the counterculture. So uh, I've done a lot of research around macrobiotics, which was a Japanese movement, essentially. And certainly in the UK and in the US, some of the the biggest original wholesalers grew out of macrobiotics. So these are people bringing brown rice, um, but also, you know, brown bread um, into the culture. So I know that that is something that everybody is familiar with from the 60s. Um, but then, of course, right. there's there's the other the other big thing would probably be meditation and yoga. Right. So yeah, so, I, and so, I remember mm-hmm. I remember those I remember those um, macrobiotics and um, and natural foods. Um, I remember that more from the '70s than the '60s. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean. You're talking about the 60s and 70s, so yes, I do remember that. Sure. I remember um, we had an international food day in, in our middle school, in our junior high school, and um, one of the boys who was just really connected to um, cool stuff came in and brought miso mm. soup and brown rice and things like that, and it was the strangest wow. thing we had ever seen. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> yeah. yes. but yes, yes. But I remember, and, and macrobiotics, yes, they went on for, you know, a couple decades, actually. That's, that's right. And, and I think in, certainly in Japan nowadays, it's all fed in into veganism, which is a slightly different thing, but not hugely different. And then the 60s, um, vegans, vegans were, was a very tiny, tiny group, but macrobiotics was, was absolutely massive. Um, and I think the, uh, in terms of, the broader whole foods thing. I think that certainly in, in America, there was an organization called Erewhon, which is nowhere backwards, which, which grew out of the, um, the macrobiotic organization. And I know that that was one of the first main wholesalers. And in, in the UK here, we had uh, the, the series shop in um, London that turned into whole, whole, whole earth foods. Um, and that, that was a, a major conduit into, you know, the, the sort of, by, by which time, by the sort of mid seventies, that had turned into a, a big operation. I think you, the point that you, you made about not remembering, you know, the whole food thing so early was probably, was right. I think it was the, 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 the seed that was sown was sown by macrobiotics in some cases. Um, but, um, so I mean, uh, it's, it's very, it's, it's always interesting to hear, you know, people who actually experienced. I mean, I'm I'm 50 now, so I, for me, it was things that, not not really my parents, but my parents' friends were doing. Um, so I I, I mm-hmm. guess I saw it, 
sort of <laughs> So you were interested in it. Well, I became a vegetarian in 1977. And right. um, at the time, there was one health food store in my area, only one. And, you know, everything, there were, were no um, substitutes for foods. It was just new foods. And the first time I cooked tofu, I just dumped the whole thing in the trash can. Now I love it because I've been doing this for so many years. <laughs> right, um, right. But, yeah. But, yes, at the end of the 70s, 1977, um, I decided to give up, you know, meat and chicken and and all those things. Mm-hmm. So, um, And I've yeah. been like that, you know, many, many, many years. Raised my children like that as well. That's amazing. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, I know that we 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 hear a lot about the plant-based diet now, and um, you know, people like you were you know were trailblazers for that. I mean, I I personally I eat a little meat, but I don't eat dairy products or the like. Um, so uh, a little meat and fish, and as little as I can, to be honest, I feel a lot better. I'm sure if I didn't eat any at all. But um, but the the uh, so certainly so food, and, and there's there's a there's a there's a a term which the journalist Warren Belasco coined, which is the counter cuisine, which which covers a lot a lot of food. But I guess the other thing that that really came into the the culture was was meditation, and um, certainly in the book um, I go right back and look at how the Buddhism first came into came to America, and also how the Vedanta came to America, and how it was picked up mainly, especially by Allen Ginsberg, but a lot of uh, Alan Watts as well. Um, and, and then you know, in their trail, um, a, a whole bunch of other people, even Jack Kerouac was, was, was very big on, on meditation and how that became like the freight of those ideas. Meditation came, came with that. And then a lot of people, in fact, by practicing meditation, ended up exploring those Eastern religions. Um, so, uh, but and, and of course, yeah. the the thing that everybody remembers is um, is transcendental meditation and and the Beatles and Maharish Mahesh Yogi, and again, that's something we go into or I go into a lot in, in the book and the history of all of that and how it pieces together with other forms of meditation. Oh, okay, yeah, I was going to bring up the Beatles, and I actually am trained in um, TM transcendental meditation. Oh, wow. um, so. Yeah, I spoke mm-hmm. to Prudence Farrow for the Prudence Farrow Bruns for the for the book. The the lady who is dear Prudence in um, on the White oh. Album. She I managed okay. to establish contact with her, and so she 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 answered some questions for me for the book. So isn't she Mia Farrow? Isn't she Mia Farrow? Okay. Yes, you're you're absolutely right. She is. And, and um, okay. so it, it's um, it's funny seeing um, Mia Farrow on on the sidelines for once in the book, um, and, and uh, Prudence in the in the sense of the spotlight. Right. Yeah, I was a big Beatles fan. I still am. Love them. Um, and There's I think many, that was probably um, many, yeah. right. I think that was probably influenced by my sister. Yeah. Right. There were many. There's. Um, I mean, the the big thread that runs through the book is is the Beatles. So, um, for instance, macrobiotics, John Lennon was a big macrobiotics food fan because partially because Yoko introduced him to, to macrobiotics. Um, and then obviously Paul was very interested in, in, um, growing and, and obviously vegetarianism with Linda. 
and but also they were interested in transcendental meditation but again paul john was interested in the primal scream therapy which is another kind of countercultural therapies so i mean pretty much everywhere i turned you know you'd find the beatles you know trailblazing essentially and obviously lsd as well which was a major factor of which came out of psychiatry so uh, yeah that's so interesting um so so is this why we say so you know when we think of like hate ashbury and places like that um right. it kind of was it was a place where people were getting high um tripping mm. um and just having free love and you know and that kind right. of thing was this going on in hate ashbury as well the wellness um, aspect of it well the, um yes absolutely and in in the, one of the people i spoke to for the book is a, a dr david smith who set up the, the hate ashbury free clinic which is the basis for the free clinic institution as it exists in the United States. Um, and so he, he dealt, I mean, obviously when we talk about the hippies in wellness, uh, uh, we, we have, we can less, learn lessons from them in, in two senses. One in the sense of, of um, how to explore, you know, different diets and meditation and, and, you know, psychological experiments in terms of healing, but obviously also, it was a kind of health cataclysm in, in some ways too. And, and the Hey Ashbury free clinic was um, mopped up after the counterculture and became a sort of a center of addiction medicine. So um, the David Smith was responsible for the creation of the addiction medicine category for the American medical association. So, you know, until that point, until the legislation, which they pushed through, you know, you would get, arrested for um prescribing your your addict your recovering addict methadone so mm. you know addiction medicine came out of the free clinic but but even even characters like charles manson who was actually circling around the free clinic he manson thought of himself as a healer i mean it's ridiculous to imagine it today but but <laughs> that was how charles manson thought of himself um, so and, and and macrobiotics was obviously a very big thing in the hate as well. So um, I mean LSD is tied up in all of this and how it how it relates to the whole story. And you know and psilocybin mushrooms and LSD are now being studied. They're proven to um, be helpful in, in psychiatric. Um, that's yeah, right. you know medication or whatever they're using they're using lsd and, and psilocybin mushrooms for for psychiatric issues now that's correct and um people especially you know critical critical situations like alcoholism into you know where there's there seems to be no way out or some situations like fear of death or terminal cancer and i think that there, that there are studies proving you know it's tremendously useful um in those scenarios so so and it's certainly when when um the way that lsd entered into the counterculture was essentially through mainly through medical trials um and psychiatric trials because there was this there was a sense that they discovered this this drug um and there was a big question mark of, of what it was useful for and 
and the main drive of it had, was was around what we could call LSD psychoanalysis. So that the process of slow process of taking LSD in a clinical setting with a psychoanalysis, a psychoanalyst, it was a, was a way of accelerating the psychotherapeutic process. And you know, because obviously, in, you know, psychotherapy can take years can take you know five years three years to have a positive resolution in psychotherapy and the argument around lsd certainly you know in the um the early 70s and the late 60s was that it accelerated the process of psychotherapy and, and that's a lot of the a lot of the people who were taking it were students at university where they uh, they were being invited in as test subjects and they all got a got a taste for it essentially and Timothy Leary's, you know, Timothy Leary's um, experiments in Harvard were is, is probably the best example of it, uh, of how it entered the uh, the counterculture through psychiatry. It's fascinating, and of course, cannabis has come so far uh, as far as being used for health, and that the hippies brought that to us as well, right? Yeah, that, that's that's right, and um, I mean it's uh, it's it's almost a whole uh, book on its own, um, the, the 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 cannabis thing. I mean, I I I, I stuck mainly to um, to to LSD um, because the the case because it so clearly came out of psychiatry. But yes, I mean, I know that um, it's uh, it has it's used in those contexts. I know speaking to David Smith, who's um, at the, at the high HP free clinic, um, he actually has a lot of concern about the, the highest, the strongest strains of of cannabis that are become legalised. So he, he's he's got a more uh, he's a bit more cautious about the uh, the new wave of um, marijuana. I think it's something mm-hmm. like twenty or thirty times stronger than than it would have been, right. you know, in the mid nineties <clears throat> even. So. Uh, yeah, it, it, it looks different. It is different. Yeah, it looks completely yeah. different. Um, and, of course, this wasn't for um, health and wellness, but, of course, Peter Max was um, pop art and, you know, was big right. in, the, um, in the pop art and um, a lot of design around that. That's right. Peter Max had as a, has a connection to to wellness though. In a set, in, there was the um, the guru Satyadananda. He was um, the the organisers of Woodstock. Um, when they realised the, the size of the crowd that had gathered, were in an absolute panic um, about how to kind of calm everybody down, keep everybody relaxed. And they actually got hold of Peter Max and said, "What do we do in the situation?" He said, "Well, you should get my guru Satyadananda." to come and address the crowd. So the first person who addressed the Woodstock audience was Peter Max's friend, such as Nanda, who was obviously talked about, you know, the, the yoga of music, etc. Um, so it's, um, it's funny seeing how all the uh, different things weave into each other. And, yeah. Yeah, it truly is. It truly is. Mm. Um, certainly in terms yeah. of uh, the computing, the computing aspect, which is another big thing that people talk about the '60s and Steve Jobs' experiences of, and the early homebrew computer clubs. There was a very big crossover there with LSD, 
And so even that has a kind of connection to wellness and, you know, mental exploration. So, yeah, everywhere you turn, it's all meshed together. Right. So, yeah, I mean, LSD could expand the mind or it could cause psychosis, you know. It, it, I, you know, some people right, ended yeah. up with psychosis from it, um, but other people really, it, it, it expanded their mind and they used it for amazing things. It made them very creative. Uh, psilocybin mushrooms mm. do the same thing, yeah. You know, what, That's what's right. really, um, yeah, what's really, um, what I've noticed from growing up with that generation is hippies never grew out of being hippies. No matter how old they are, they still have sort of a hippie attitude. It was lasting. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like the yuppies era um, or any other era where people went through it and grew out of it. Hippies never grow out of it, right? Right. I think it sort of burned, it sort of burned, it burns its way into them. I think they sort of see the light, don't they? And, um, and uh, you know, st- stick with it. I, th- I think you're you're absolutely right. I mean, the people that I interviewed, um, sort of gurus and psychotherapists and food people, and I spoke to the journalist. I mean, I spoke to the author Jermaine Greer. Um, they are all. That was obviously the foundational time of their their lives, and and they all move forward from that time as seeing themselves in those terms in terms of the things that they discovered at that time so i, I think you're absolutely right once a hippie right. always and a they hippie. Were, yeah and they were activists um that really did change the world because they fought to get the vietnam war um to end and um and they fought like crazy i mean every campus um, yeah. Everywhere you went, people these hippies were fighting for the Vietnam War to stop, and I think they had a big impact on that. Absolutely, I mean, I think that they, you know, it was that that, that resistance to 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 the Viet to Vietnam is is absolutely certainly completely characterized is the um, you know the the, the era. Um, I mean, in the UK, the the, the 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 movement against the war was was less conspicuous, obviously, but um, but for, for in terms of America, you mean absolutely right. I mean, it's um, yes. The yeah. uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of the macrobiotics people who who were in favour of macrobiotics took a lot of sustenance from from the from the, the idea that George Osawa, who was the pioneer behind macrobiotics was himself a, um, a conscientious objector. He actually decided sort of halfway through the Second World War that he was actually, it wasn't quite as clear-cut as it's sometimes framed, but he decided that, um, that Japan was going to lose and therefore he needed to make contact with other nations to, to try and bring a peaceful resolution to the war. So even even in in food you have um and how that connects to wellness you have the the impact of that so i you know living in i of course i live in the united states and this was huge in the united states was it as big in the uk 
Definitely, definitely. I think the the UK. I think the UK and and America. I, I what I did find was that quite surprisingly, the people I spoke to, although there are very key figures in terms of the UK. So, for instance, Aldous Huxley, or R. D. Lang, um, or who was the anti-psychiatrist based in the UK, or the Beatles. Um, and you know, I could list on the the people who I spoke to in the UK were actually Americans who were actually expats. So Craig Sams, who's the guy who ran Seed Restaurant, which is where John Lennon used to eat macrobiotic food, is an American. Joe Burke, who was Ardy Lang's assistant, was American. Morton Chatsman, another psych- psychoanalyst, who was an American. Um, and Jermaine Greer is an Australian. So so so. Certainly in the UK, a lot of um, people were were Americans. Um, I think it, I think it was it was what happened when America discovered the ideas of the Far East, of the Tao and Buddhism, and the Vedanta, and it it really it took off in America. And I think from there, those ideas filtered or were, were transmuted and filtered across across the world essentially. So when did the hippie era actually begin? What year was it, do you know? Well, it's difficult to put an actual date on it, but for the book, I look at two dates, which is, I, 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 term, I call it the counterculture, and I have a date, which is Allen Ginsberg reading Howell, which is, um, where is it? It's uh, the 7th of October, 1955 in San Francisco, mm. and it ends with Alan being thrown off um, Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review Tour in 1975. So that's <laughs> almost like the start and the end. He was demoted to a baggage handler on the uh, Rolling Thunder <laughs> Review Tour, and it's almost like that dream is, reaches its apotheosis. Uh, um, wow. so, so that's almost 20 years uh, of a counterculture. Um, some people date the count. There's a there's a there's a book um, which talks about the kind of perennial counterculture by a guy called Ken Goffman, and and he dates the counterculture starting with Abraham and finishing with Acid House. So uh, you know, there's whoever you ask, there's different dates. But for me, that was a that was a window that made sense. I could see that all the strands, you know, Alan Watts, I think, died in the early 70s, and you can sort of see it resolving itself essentially. So interesting. So, um, you know, also you talk about, um, well, I don't know about if you talk about it in your book, but um, in your in your pitch or whatever that I received, you talk about um, black power, which um, that was a huge rise. Right. They, they rose up. It was a, um, a, a grassroots kind of thing that was going on. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a, there is a sense um, that certainly one aspect of the counterculture, though, there's a kind of, kind of crypto-racist thing going on, which I think that arguably someone like Manson picked up on. Manson was a, was a, a terrible racist. Um, but so while, and his theories around the White Album, it was the White Album because it was white. But, you know, if mm. you look at 
looking at looking at Ken Kesey, his the writings are about Ken Kesey and um, Tom Wolfe's book on Ken Kesey, describing you know the electric Kool Aid acid tests. There's a sense that quite a lot of the um, the discourse is slightly racist, actually, in a sense of the white people were prepared to do LSD and lose their minds and um and that you know the, the black man was was not was not so there is it's uh, you know you'd like to think that the civil rights would have a bigger impact on this area that i studied but i think regrettably not um i mean obviously civil rights was and martin luther king was was obviously absolutely essential and for the nation essential but there's still a sense certainly in the research that i did that the kind of uh, avant-garde the counterculture was still was was maybe not as close to the black experience as as it should have been or as aware of it as it should have been hmm. wow well wow. i i really thought it was much more integrated um but i know that you know there that there was this counterculture of um within that generation of um yeah. you know of of Black people rising up and taking their power, um, and feminism. I think there definitely, definitely were. I mean, there definitely were. I mean, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dispute that at all. I mean, I think that you know that was absolutely a part of it. But I just think that there was a strain of the just the counterculture that was, yeah, yeah maybe preoccupied with with Eastern philosophy or whatever, but but not as open minded. As as okay. maybe it could have been, but, gotcha, you know. gotcha, and feminism. So that's when women yeah. started. You know, and, and it's interesting as we're talking. You know that these mm. um, divisive kind of um, thought, you know, thought power, thought whatever, um, was happening at a time where everybody was sort of trying to be, get together um, with love. Right. So feminism yeah. right. was another thing that you mentioned that came out of this. Yes, I mean feminism has a has a, a very strong connection to the wellness um, argument as well because the, in terms of how it related to the book, um, Jermaine Greer was was very interesting on this when I when I spoke to her that it was that it was about obviously there was a sense of of sexuality uh, as as being a natural thing. Um, and so, so it, which related to kind of uh, Freudian ideas of a non-repression, and so obviously the sense of, of free love. But but so from feminism was obviously involved in that. But there was a whole, certainly to Jermaine Greer, there were and and for other feminists like Anne Cote, there was a, a question of how the the female orgasm related to um, oppression of women. And how it was understood in psychotherapy was was wrong. How Freud understood that was wrong, and that was a big, you know, battleground for feminist ideas. Um, so, hmm. so Jermaine Jermaine was involved in a, a magazine called Suck, which was all about, you know, sexual liberation. It was a kind of a an, an erotica, trying to trying to break the sort of um, sexist embargo on on pornography. But it, it it didn't work out. It was a disaster for her, and she 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 regretted it. 
but she, you know, she, so so there was a lot of, um, you know, and, and so and obviously that related to ideas of spirituality as well because it was um, liberative, and um, and and you know you you touch on the ideas of the the psychoanalyst Wilhelm Reich who was very much very much current at the time and 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 the ideas of you know a sort of cosmic orgone or kind of um the repression related to sexuality and that that the the uh, so envisaging the the universe being powered by this blue cosmic energy and so obviously that related to sex so in a on a, on a prosaic level you know so so you know, it was uh, all, you know, deeply intertwined in, in the question of, of, of feminism in that in that period. And the um, the free love concept went on until AIDS came out. That that was that yes. stopped it. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I think that that's absolutely right, and it, in its tracks. Um, yep, it did. It and, stopped it. Yeah. I know that the uh, a lot of the one of the directions that the counterculture came moved out of, you know, the the rock music and everything was was into the disco era. era. And I know that that was obviously mm-hmm. very important for a lot of a lot of gay people. So that you know, dancing and you know, communal ecstasy, communal experience of spirituality, which which is what people argue was the experience of the dance floor in the disco era um obviously that you know that that was a big unfortunately a big focus for for aids um so it was almost like uh you know a cataclysm waiting to happen uh, very unfortunate um yeah yes yeah it really was but i remember that i remember seeing it on life magazine or you know time mm. whichever one it was and it was so shocking, mm. you know. It made mm. everybody think, "Oh my gosh, what have I been doing?" <laughs> um, right. You know, right. and, right. and some were fortunate. Yeah. yeah, and some were fortunate, and some were not. You know, so mm. um, that really shook. That really shook the, the the world. I think. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, what got you? I mean, I know that you said your parents were sort of they knew people that. Um, that were hippies, but they weren't hippies mm. themselves. So, what got you interested in in this? Um, well, I, I've always been. Um, I, I've always been. I mean, obviously, a lot, a lot, a lot. I grew up. I was born in like seventy one, and a lot of us grew up in the kind of shadow of of that era, um, and certain periods of time. Like, for instance, for us in the UK in the uh, you know the early 90s that was the rave culture was almost like like a sort of slight return of, of the counterculture so i've always been interested in the music of that period um and that was really how i got interested in it and it was really realizing noticing the connections between things like lsd psychiatry um transcendental meditation and things like anti-psychiatry, the movement, the R.D. Lang's movement, that I, I sort of started thinking, oh, look, there are all these modalities, you know, macrobiotic foods that have come out of that era 
and they're all about wellness. And I and I looked up and there was nothing really written on about it. So I, I plunged into it. And then I think I kind of more than I bargained for, really, because the way it all flows together and then also reaches back into, I mean, I ended up traveling to Japan. I went to um, Kyoto and Tokyo and met the macrobiotic people there. And I, I even went to... Um, Varanasi and I went to Bodh Gaya I went to the, the caves that the Buddha meditated in and it kind of I ended up being sucked into a big journey trying to get to the bottom of all of this stuff I mean I, I, I thought it was quite as you know all on the surface but when you start exploring it even even macrobiotics is essentially Taoism um, you end up immediately discovering these uh, how these ideas of Eastern philosophy flowed into the uh, Western thought at this time. So, I mean, that's what lies behind it all. So how long did it take you to actually go through all this? As you were going through all of this, was your intention to write a book about it or were you just exploring at that time? Uh, no, I, I was, I, I pitched a book to a publisher and then picked up, picked it up and then realized the more I went to interview people and, but it took me three, it took me three years. Um, but wow. no, it was all research and interviews and I went to meet, uh, you know, um, gurus in, um, I visited Esalen, which is obviously another big part of it. Um, I visited, interviewed people in San Francisco and, um, gurus in, in on retreats in Mount Shasta, just in, in California. So I just went all over the world. I went to Basel and interviewed uh, a very famous LSD psych- psychotherapist in Basel, in Switzerland. So it, it took me all over the place. Um, but absolutely, it was more of a, once I started scratching the surface and reading a lot, I think I read over 400 books, um, it became clear that it was all connected to itself, to connected to, interconnected and connected. So that's very much a book of, of how all those connections make sense. That's fascinating, and you're really the only person that's ever made that connection, as far as I know, right? I, I think that I don't know of anybody else who's, who's put it together, but, um, but I think there's definitely there's lots of material on LSD in the 60s and, you know, um, right. spiritual. spiritual no, I mean, there's lots of material, but, but it's not really gone through this prism. So, no, um, but uh, right. you know, so so it's nice to find something original for a change. <laughs> oh, it is. I mean, and when I saw the, um, you know, what hippies taught us about well-being, I I started to think, and I couldn't think of anything. I'm like, wow, what you know, what is this going to be about? Uh, why mm. did you? Your book is is titled Retreat. Why did you? Um, mm. How did you decide on that name? Um, well, retreat has a sort of it's a bit of a, a pun in a sense. In that, obviously, there is the yoga retreat or the meditation retreat where you go for seclusion. And obviously, the retreat itself was a big motif of of the '60s, where you know Paul McCartney goes and buys a cottage and lives on the Isle of Skye on his own, um, and you know Allen Ginsberg buys a cherry tree farm and goes and even Charles Manson has a retreat and so everybody has a retreat everybody's going on retreats but there's obviously a, a pun on 
a retreat to the 60s, you know, retreat to this period from our oh, present okay. day. Right, so going back to okay. it. But, I mean, the retreat okay. is, um, there's one of the, one of the, the good chapter, well, probably my favorite chapter is, is about the retreat and how, um, how those ideas, you know, there's, a, I, there's Lily, who was, John Lily, who was the guy who did a lot of um, work with isolation tanks. And uh, he worked at, out of Esalen a lot. And obviously that isolation tanks where you float in the, in the salt water that's one of that's a kind of a very sort of strong motif for um for you know retreat for self sensory deprivation which is what the retreat essentially is about but then you can it, you discover it a lot in um, the vedanta and buddhism and and how it works with meditation so in the sense with the vedanta you you to meditate the first condition is that you retreat that you go and find a the, the yogis will build a little house on the a hut on the in top of the Himalayas in the hills or sit in the cave on their own away from everything else and, and then they will meditate so the retreat is is the sort of primary condition of that and I have a bit of fun relating that to things like headphone music so dark side of the moon is a is a classic kind of retreat album where you know you, you close your eyes you put the headphones on and you can you don't have to go and um live in a cottage in in the black mountains of wales like led zeppelin did for instance you can actually experience that sensory deprivation and ex- you know in a musical situation so um you know there's there's there's, there's, there's lots, lots of uh, there's lots of uh, interweaving things like that so um yeah i never knew that i really didn't I mean, it was a great, great album, Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so as you were, uh, do you have um, a background in soci- sociology or anything like that, or just the interest? I, I'm actually just, uh, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an animator um, by trade. <laughs> I, I'm a, I do uh, <laughs> motion graphics, um, and I'm, today I've been working for doing the Guns N' Roses um, world tour. And um, what else have I been doing today? So something for the Department of Education here in in the UK. Um, so it's oh my uh, but my interest has always been um, music. So and I wrote about music for a long time, and 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 that brought me into being interested in in well-being. I think as well I, uh, there was a period when I, I became very ill. So at that point, I started researching health and, and wellness issues. And I think that was probably what precipitated the research was being unwell uh, and trying to figure it all out, basically. Yeah. Are you, are you better? Are you feeling better now? Yes, I am. Thanks. And I, I think probably the process of writing the book played a big part of that. And just um, you know, getting to the bottom of things and coming to understand things, um, yeah. And, and and I think you know, without being too over the top, I mean, I know that for instance, Jung's Carl Jung's big thing is is the one of the kind of malaises of of the 20th century malaise, or even the Viktor Frankl, who's another person who writes very nicely on this, is is to do with 
you know, our lack of meaning, our lack of a spiritual essence. And so I think that was certainly something I discovered writing the book. Um, and I certainly, mm. you know, if there's any sense of how if you want to improve your well-being, that's, that's a very good thing to start looking at is, um, is you, you, a sense of spirituality and, and, and what that means to you as, uh, as an individual. Um, that can be uh, answer a lot of questions, solve a lot of problems. We could do we could do a whole show on that. <laughs> we Absolutely, could talk about yeah. that all day. I love that. I love yeah. that topic, and I love Carl Jung and um, and the things that he did. He was the um, yeah. He um, coined the term synchronicity, and um, that's such a big that's part right. of our lives. You know, synchronicity. Yeah. So, there's a lot yeah. about um, him in in the book, so yeah. Oh yeah, wow! Yeah, you you have a, a yeah, very yeah. um. You have an interest in philosophy as well. You have an interest in so many different things. So, um, besides finding um, emotional psychological wellness throughout this journey, what else did you incorporate in your life that you thought you may that you never thought you would? I think that was the main, the main thing was um, a sense of, um, I guess, from reading, reading a lot around and reading philosophy as well as I've read Nietzsche and Bergson and Schopenhauer and Plato and Plotinus in the course of the research. And I think Nietzsche has a term, which is the self, which is, um, and it's something that is picked up in the Vedanta as well where in the Vedanta, the Indian philosophy, they imagine the ego as being, which is our sense of individuality, as being a small fragment of a greater consciousness, which is when you scratch the surface, it's just the same thing that Freud is talking about when he's talking about the ego and the id. The id is the self, and obviously that Jung is talking about. So I think that sense of the existence of something called the self However, whatever you want to call it, um, I know a Christian might call it God, or you know, uh, an Indian might call it Brahma, or however. I think that that is something that we all forget about, or we've forgotten about. But the other, the other lesson that I learned in the process of the book, writing the book, is that once you've discovered this kind of cosmic other, which was Obviously, the 60s, they were mad for it. I mean, they took whatever route they could to get to that state, that out state. So whether it's LSD or whatever, people went mad, died in the pursuit of this kind of other. But really, the lesson is that once you've discovered the existence of this thing, that, that you're better not identifying with it, really. That, you know, it's actually about living in accord with it rather than identifying with it entirely. So, and that's Jung's big thing as well, uh, individuation, where uh, you don't um, you don't give up your ego, you don't destroy who you are, you just learn to live in accord with that cosmic other. So. Uh, in terms of big ideas, yeah. that, that's kind of where I end up, yeah. really. That is, um, that is the key to emotional wellness. That is. 
um, yes. living in accord with who you are, the way the universe flows. Um, yeah. That is wellness. When because when we put up resistance to the the universe, God, whatever um, it is, when we mm. put up resistance to what is trying to come in. That's where we block yeah. things. That's where we come, you know, we have dis-ease uh, in our mind, exactly. in our body. So, um, right, the, the expression, go with the flow, I don't know if that started back then, but that it's so important. No, definitely. Yes. Right. Yes. So, and, so and important no, And, and in, in, in a way that, you know, that um, the, to actually try and live in accord with those bigger ideas is how um is is a message you know the, the sickness in that sense is a message and that you know one has to heed the message you know heed you know so you, one has to heed one's illness one one can't you know smother it with painkillers or try and push it out of one's consciousness you know one has to actually absorb the message of um of one's pain of one's suffering and at that and that's that's the message that's what we have to learn from so in a sense you know uh, the, the stan groff who one of the guys i interviewed has a great analogy he says when you go to a, a garage with your car and um you know you, you you point out to the garage technician look the bulb on the uh, the fuel gauge is, is flickering it's it's not working and then the, the guy in the garage just breaks the bulb and goes there you go <laughs> There, your, your car's fixed now. Obviously, you know the analogy is is you don't just break the bulb, which is you know short circuiting it through painkillers or whatever. You actually have to cope with what the message is and and try and go underneath the hood, fix the problem, and that way you know get right. the bulb to work properly. So right. yeah. Yes, and pain um, pain does bring us to to this. When pain brings us to our knees, we we are silent. We have nothing more to say. We can only listen. And that, uh, I mean, some people can grasp it before that point, but most people, I think, grasp it when they're rendered silent. They're rendered yeah. where everything just stops, and they yeah. have to listen. It's either listen yeah. or die. You know. So, yeah. So I, I think that's it. Listening, like you say, that's very, that's very, yeah, that's very profound. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. I mean, I say to people, because I work with people who are in tremendous pain, emotional pain, and um, some people have just had such incredibly difficult journeys. And, you know, mm. and I say to them, listen, you know, some people hear the message somewhere along the line. And then there's mm. us, including myself, that has to get mm. hit by the two by four. You know, it just two by four, knocked on our butt. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. I think this more. is what happened to me. You know, you, you I certainly <laughs> what happened to me, you know, you didn't I, I didn't have the good sense to, to take to take it on board. Um I mm -hmm. had to find out the hard way. Um so Right. No, definitely. And I think the thing about pain is, in a sense, or suffering, is that, that sometimes we make it worse for ourselves by pushing it away. Because actually, when one actually goes through it, it's often yeah. not as bad as, as one thinks it's going to be. And so right. actually going through it is, is uh, 
you know it's that thing of like you 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 think you've fallen off a cliff and you're holding on to a tree with all your you know your might and you think you've got you know 200 meters beneath you but actually if you let go you're only you're only falling a, a meter you know to the ground right. i think that's a, a, an interesting right. way of looking at it it is so um we just have a few minutes left was there uh, a message that you want to share with us or something else from the book that you think is important that we didn't talk about well i think we've uh, no i think it's been a real um a real pleasure to talk through it with you Andy and it's been really fantastic um i i think um i just i, I guess a message out to everybody um who's uh, coping with the covid situation and just you know give everybody um give everybody my 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 good regards and hope that everybody's doing okay um coping with this um very unusual situation that's happening at the moment um, Thank you. So. Yes. Uh, me, uh, yeah, me too. Um, it's pretty hard to do. It's pretty hard to deal with it. Yeah. It's getting harder and harder, but hopefully this will be over soon and it'll just be a yeah. memory. It'll be something that we'll all talk about for years and years. We'll tell our <laughs> grandchildren. <laughs> there was a That's time right. when the world stopped. Everything stopped. <laughs> you oh, couldn't, wow. couldn't write it. You couldn't write it. Could you? you couldn't make it out. No. Right, exactly. It's amazing, and it and I believe this is a spiritual. Um, this is a spiritual journey. I believe that we're changing, because I know that we are yeah. um, moving out of the third and fourth dimension into the fifth. And when mm-hmm. we turn the corner with this, things are going to be very different. So, um, yeah. you know, I can't help but wonder. There's that feeling, um, isn't there? Yeah, there is that feeling. Yeah. I, I, yes. I know what you mean. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. So anyway, it's been really fantastic talking to you. Really exciting. I mean, I love talking about these topics, and it really does take me back. Um, so good luck with well, your Well, thanks book. so much when for it, having me, it, Randy, and I'll, I'll send you a copy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I definitely want to read um, Retreat. So Retreat is available everywhere online. Everywhere, and it's being distributed in North America by Random House. So um, oh, perfect. Oh, lucky. available in North America. So a, a lot of it is, is, is about America. So, um, you know, it's, Oh my uh, gosh. Well, congratulations yeah. on getting a, getting a deal with random house. That is unusual and, you know, yeah. and very hard to do. So congratulations. Um, Thank you very much. Anyway, you. anyway, okay, well, have you a wonderful you. day. It's great talking to you. You too. Lovely to talk to you. Take care. Cheerio. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Cheerio. Bye-bye. <laughs> so we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlifeatrandyfine.com. Check out my website, randyfine.com. There's, um, there's a whole new section now. Um, there's a shop where I have, at the time, at this current time, I have um, five MP3s that you can download about narcissistic abuse. Uh, put a, I put a lot of time and energy into them, and I think they're really good. So go to randyfine.com and to shop and check them out. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.